Welcome to Superintendent Radio Network. I'm Guy Cipriano. We're continuing our Tartan Talk series by having a conversation with Doug Myslinski. And this episode is going to be a bit more construction focused because Doug works for the Wadsworth Golf Construction Company, which is one of the biggest builders of golf courses in the United States. Doug's position with Wadsworth gives him a broad view of what's happening in the golf industry. And we're going to get into the relationship between golf course architecture and construction in this podcast. And we're also going to discuss his career journey. But before we get going with Doug, we'd like to thank Better Billy Bunker for supporting this podcast. Better Billy Bunker is not only a huge supporter of the American Society of Golf Course Architects, Better Billy Bunker supports a number of industry efforts, including the work of golf course superintendents. So we're glad to have them on board, and we're glad that Doug was able to take some time to join us. Well, Doug, it's great to have you on the podcast. And before we do these podcasts, I usually banner with the guest and i just found out something very interesting about doug doug you were the equipment manager for a major college football team just explain what that was like when you did it and who were some of the people you worked with at the time well well, first thanks for having me guy i really appreciate the opportunity to come out and talk uh yeah i think i date back to um uh, i was i was a huge pit panther fan um because my uncle was an athletic director at the university of pittsburgh growing up and we got to do a lot of fun things at the university, uh, behind-the-scenes type stuff with with some of the bigger names of Marino and Dorsett. And, and it just came time in high school to make a college selection, and I was given an opportunity to, to be an equipment manager, which would help pay my way through school and, and give me some pretty cool opportunities at West Virginia University, which was, that was a bad word growing up and being a Pitt fan. West Virginia was never, never looked at as a uh you know one of the friendlier schools it was always a pretty big rivalry so yeah from uh 86 to 91 i got to um go to uh several bowl games including one that was uh for the national title we played notre dame in 1988 out in phoenix arizona and um unfortunately we ended up on the losing end but that notre dame team was they were stacked that was the Rocket Ishmael and Tony Rice, and I think they had six guys go in the first round out of that group. They were they were a pretty stout group. So, but yeah, it was a lot of fun and kept my uh, my life in, in in college busy. There aren't a lot of West Virginia Mountaineers in the golf industry. How many have you come across? And I bet the ones that you've come across are really really prideful, like yourself. <laughs> yeah, well. Actually, the president of our of our fine association is a West Virginia grad, Dan Belgian, and um, there's a few others that came through our industry. Uh, it was it was interesting. It's really really why I became a golf course architect. Uh, I had I had you know some small aspirations growing up, but in the area that I'm from, um, Eastern Ohio. There was uh, Tim Freeland, um, and there was Joe Duco, and there was Jeff Myers, and they all came from they all came from the same couple of cities there. And those guys went on to work with Gary Player and be golf course architects. And I read about them when I was when I was younger, and and I kind of uh, it inspired me. My was my love of the game. Um, it inspired me to go on in West Virginia to become a, a golf course architect, or get a degree in landscape architecture, and then get into golf course construction and design it was pretty neat 
Yeah, we're going to kind of go in reverse here. I sent you some talking points. I do that with all the guests. And you mentioned you're from a small Ohio town. I believe that town is Steubenville, which is, is actually not that far from where I grew up. Explain to our listeners that don't know Eastern Ohio what it's like and what type of work ethic you develop co- coming through through an area like that. Uh, it, you know, blue collar really defines it. Uh, steel mills were, are, are, were, were prevalent then. Um, all my family and, and everybody that, that I knew um, either worked in the steel mills or, or, or had somebody in their family work in the steel mills. So it was, it was very blue collar right on the Ohio River. Um, we, uh, we had West Virginia to our east, and right across one city in West Virginia was the state of Pennsylvania, which that's where you grew up. <laughs> so it was right there. And then um, Steubenville is is a is a tough town. Uh, we are known for we have three pretty famous people that are from there. Um, Dean Martin grew up there, and uh, Jimmy the Greek is from there. And then I went to school with a gal by the name of Tracy Lords who went on to um, to have some movies that uh, she got in trouble for a little later in life. But uh, those are our. Those are our three claim to fame. I would say football is a claim to fame too. Steubenville, Big Red—that that's a big deal. Did you did you watch a lot of those games growing up? Oh, I did. Played a little bit myself. Um, my, I was a golfer, but uh, yeah, they're they're still. I go back, and uh, my mom still lives right adjacent to the stadium at which Steubenville Big Red plays, and it's a it's about an eleven thousand seat stadium. And living here in, in Chicago, you know, the, the people here think that, that their their high school football is, is celebrated and and um, and cherished. And it is. You know, they're 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 passionate, but it you know, when you go back and you see eleven thousand people go into a stadium that's got when I was growing up guy, and that was, you know, many years ago, we had an electronic scoreboard and we had videos that, that played on that scoreboard back then. They weren't the highest of revolu- you know resolutions, but we had that we had that there, and that was you know 35 years ago. And today, you know, when you go back and there there's high, you know, HD televisions all over the stadium, and I mean this is this is high school football at its at its highest level. You know, you can compare it to Texas, I think, and Western PA. I think it's all very very passion filled, and it's it's fun to see. It's really fun to see. Many of the uh, architects we speak to in these podcasts come from bigger cities with lots of golf courses. What was the golf scene like in Steubenville growing up, and what type of golf courses were you exposed to as a, a child and teenager? Limited is the best way to say it. Um, we had a, a municipal golf course that was a nine-hole uh, track, and uh, I went over and played that thing as much as I possibly could. Uh, it's very undulated. Where in the summer times it was not, you know, there wasn't much irrigation uh, on the golf course, and and in the summer times when it would get dry, the ball would just roll all over the place. And you know, there'd be <laughs> you'd have the most interesting of lies and positions. So you really got to learn to play the game with the ball above your feet or below your feet and as far as other courses it just we didn't have that many options um there were some other public golf courses we had one one private club that was near us Steubenville country club um across the river in west virginia there was williams country club which today is today is still still doing well but we were 
not allowed the privileges to play those. Um, but but that was really it. I, I, I played, I could walk to that golf course or ride my bike to it. It was only, you know, a mile away from the house. And I remember my dad getting me a locker when I was young and just said, you know, go, go play golf. And I did. And I, I really took advantage of that and met so many great people. And, and my dad was, my dad was a big inspiration and I hope you don't mind me going off on this tangent, but he was a, um, my dad locked his arm in World War II. Uh, he got hit with a mortar and took his left arm and uh, came home at the age of 19. And, um, you know, he, he, he got work uh, with the city of Steubenville, uh, went on to work in their water department, but he, he started to play the game of golf uh, with one arm, take it back with one and, and swing as hard as you can through it. And, you know, when I started to really learn the game and he was starting to teach me the game, you know, I never had a lot of true respect for what he was doing because I was too young and, and ignorant. But the older I got, the, the more I, I was just in awe of, you know, a, a 10 to 11 handicap he played to with one arm on this, you know, we called it the goat ranch, this this golf course of uneven lies and undulated greens. Uh, it, it was it was amazing what he did in his you know in his golf well in his life but in his golf career was was just spectacular and I was so fortunate to have him teach me the game and and help me help me get better in the game but um, you know that's just kind of a that's my background with it with Steubenville and my dad in that little nine hole golf course that that was what it was all about. Golf is truly a sport that offers something for everybody. How did growing up with a father that had that type of disability affect some of the design and construction decisions you've made throughout the course of your career? Uh, that's, that's, that's a good question. I think that um, that golf course, uh, with, its, with its severe undulations and, and seeing what may have limited him, um, but, but I, I can't really even say that guy because he – he hit shots that, that most guys with, with two arms can only dream about. So I, I can't even say that it was he had any impact, but certainly the way that that golf course was graded or the lack of grading, the way that those greens were undulated, had always played a role in, I think, deep down in my thought process of playability versus you know non-playable or strategic versus penal. Um, it all... I think it all worked into into what I I believe is is a good golf or fair golf course now. There aren't that many golf course architects. Steubenville's that not that big of a a town. How do you explain multiple golf course architects coming from where you grew up? <laughs> I, I I wish you could explain it to me because I'm just baffled. I really am. Um, it's interesting uh, that. You know, there's not – everybody's kind of gone there. And I guess this is a trend through the industry. Everybody's been forced to diversify. You know, I don't think Jeff practices a whole lot anymore, Jeff Myers. Um, Joe Duco, unfortunately, um, you know, he's he's no longer with us. And myself, you know, with, with my diversity now, uh, it's it seems to have, have changed a little bit of things, you know. So, But I can't explain that. I can't explain it at all. I wish I could. Speaking about 
diversifying a career. You've spent the, the last few years working for a great company, Wadsworth Golf Construction Company. How did you end up with Wadsworth, and what what have what's the time been like so far with that company? I started my career after I graduated from West Virginia University. I started with Wadsworth. Um, Joe Duco, again, was with the uh, the Gary Player Group at the time, um, suggested that I learn through building golf courses. And uh, they happened to be building a golf, two golf courses right outside of the city of Pittsburgh, Diamond Run and Nevillewood. He introduced me to the guys. They were fortunate enough. To, I was fortunate enough to have them hire me. And I worked out in the field with the Wadsworth Company for 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 three years, and uh, building building those two golf courses, and then went down to to Texas to build a course there, and it was great, guy. I mean, just learning learning how to how to tie those boots in the morning and and make a golf course become a reality out in the field was was fantastic. Um, it was immeasurable, I think, and and then I I um they. They knew my my ultimate goal was to be a golf course architect, and they wanted to to help me along the way. Brent Wadsworth and John Cotter and all the team here. So they moved me into the office here in Chicago, uh, which is in Plainfield, Illinois. And I I went on um, to be an estimator. I went on to, and that was back in the day when we were building, you know, three to four hundred golf courses a year in the United States, and. And uh, the the Wadsworth Company was doing, you know, 20 of them. So I got to see all these different plans from all these different architects and and their bid forms and their and the way that they put things together on the front end to to get pricing for a golf course. That that started me. I, I worked for three years doing that, and uh, and and I I truly believe that really helped me get a good good kickstart into being a golf course architect. I then went on to, to work for Rick Jacobson for, for 19 years, and, um, and now I'm back. So you could say it was, it was full circle, and uh, the last couple of years have been great. I've spent a little time out in the field, but most of the time in the office doing um, the, you know, kind of business development stuff and, um, and working with the, golf course, the Wadsworth Golf Charities Foundation. Okay, there was a lot in that answer. I think the first thing we have to <laughs> dissect here is many of our listeners maybe have never heard of the role of the estimator. Explain what that was, what exactly you did, and does that position still exist with a lot of companies, or is it merged into other positions? Well, the estimator is is much is a required position, right? So the plans and the specs by the golf course architect get developed. They get sent to the office, and they're asked then to bid on that project, to to put a price um, to that work. And the estimator is the, the person that does all the takeoffs, so they'll quantify everything that those plans um, reflect. And then they'll, uh, and all the materials that are required to build that plan, and then we'll put pricing to that plan. And that's what, that's what um, you know, really a bid or a cost to build a golf course comes from. The estimator plays a huge role in that. And so that's what I was for, for three years. And now I'm, I'm kind of back doing some of that, too. What do you learn about the state of the golf industry by holding that position? You probably know a lot about how the, how the industry is doing just by looking at some of the things that come into the office and some of the, the, the quotes and prices of things. Uh, you're, you're 100% right. I mean, when we, when we 
when we see things going well, like they're going now, um, we're seeing more plans, we're seeing more detailed plans, we're seeing um, bigger plans, right? Bigger projects uh, with with budgets that 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 are are a little looser and bigger. Um, but then when when the the screws get tightened and the economy shifts a little bit, then those plans become a little more vague. Uh, the the, the, the budgets are, are smaller. You start to see more where a project comes in and you see alternates. Like, you know, we're going to rebuild this screen, and then we're going to have an alternate to rebuild this screen or this T. And that gives the club the flexibility of, okay, if we don't have that much money, then we can reduce it or we can eliminate it. But if we do have, if we happen to, to have more funds available, then we can add that green or add that T. And we see, we see stuff like that. Kind of interesting, uh, the first two new golf courses you were involved with were Diamond Run and Neville Wood. I happened to be uh, coming of age and starting golf in Western PA right when those two courses were being built. So I kind of, I'm familiar with them. So it was really personal for me when I heard that those were your first two major projects. Who were some of the people that you worked with on those projects? And have you been back to those courses recently? I, you know, I haven't. Um, Ken Fleasick was the superintendent at uh, Nevillewood, and ironically, Rick Jacobson was the the site guy uh, for the Jack Nicholas organization. So Rick and I, you know, really didn't know each other back then, but we we certainly came to know each other um, 20 years later, uh, or, or or no, I should say six years later. And then Diamond Run, uh, there was there's such good people on the ground there they had hired a maintenance crew early there were there were guys that i got to know really well because we we worked next to each other when you know because the club was doing the growing of the golf course while we were doing the planting of the golf course and uh, i think every green that i i i was in charge of the cedar i had the the walk behind cedar and i was putting putting the seed down on all the greens and uh, the superintendent was right there with me, and and that superintendent is now um, in the golf course construction industry, and we see each other every now and then, and it uh, it trade shows and stuff like that. So it's it's kind of neat. And I believe Ken Fleasick's still the superintendent at, at Nevillewood. He is. He is. He's still there, and I I think he's winding down his career, and he's done a fantastic job there. Really has. What was it like moving from uh, Western Pennsylvania, you know, Eastern Ohio, Northern West Virginia to Chicago? Chicago is nothing like the place you, you grew up or where you started on some of these projects. Yeah, that's 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 very true. Um, I, it, it's interesting because you, you know back there you were you were you know when you wanted to do something fun you you really you went back and you you threw rocks in the Ohio River or you went fishing or you you did something like that. And when you move to a big city like this, there's all kind of opportunities with parks and, and so much more golf. Um, I, I've just had the opportunity to, to play some of the greatest golf courses in the world that are all here in Chicago, and uh, I, I just so appreciate it. And raising a family here with our, our great park districts and the opportunities that are provided to them has been has been priceless. You mentioned that you a big part of your job is with operating the Wadsworth Golf Charities Foundation. For our listeners that don't know, explain to what to them what that's all about. 
yeah, that that was a this is a, a wonderful thing that um, that about twenty years ago Brent Wadsworth started. Uh, he 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 put some funds into an into a um, into an account and 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 vowed to only distribute those funds to facilities or programs that help grow the game of golf. And the mission is just to get kids, um, people that are underprivileged, um, veterans, people that may have been injured or had some some uh, health failures, utilize golf to uh, to help them in the world. And I, I was lucky enough to 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 now be involved in it and help find either programs or facilities that are doing that. And it's to say it's rewarding, guy, is an understatement. I've, and one of the great things about it is I've been able to then work with a bunch of different golf course architects now uh, that with the programs that they've developed or, or they're helping develop or the facilities that they're helping to build or to design and help them with the grants that we have to help get those projects kicked off or to, to get completed. So uh, it's pretty neat, um, and, and I'm, I'm blessed to, you know, have had a father that, that played golf with one arm to now help fund building facilities that will, that will help people with disabilities play the game. It's, it's pretty darn neat. You're obviously proud of all of them, but what are some of those facilities that stick out? What are some specific examples of facilities that have benefited from the, the foundation? fairly new into it uh it's only been uh, two years since i've really been involved and uh, like the cantini youth links uh, is a project it's a nine-hole golf course that accompanies uh the 27-hole golf course at cantini and and only kids are allowed to play it kids you know it's 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 an adult really uh can only walk a kid to up to the doors of the facility but the child has to then um you know, uh, have the process of paying for the the uh, the round of golf and and walking out to the to the first tee by themselves and, and it it teaches them the game of golf along with all the disciplines that go with it. Those are the kind of projects I've I've recently been able to help contribute to several programs. Um, Revelation Golf is something here in in the in the uh, Chicagoland area where uh, they, people with disabilities, they provide clinics to them and uh, allow them to allow them to go out and, and swing a golf club. The golf club might be retrofitted to, to their disability. Um, we help fund those types of prosthetics. Um, you know, instances like that, uh, we, we, uh, PGA Hope, we, we try to support as much of that as we can, and that's that's getting golfers that uh, are, are, I'm sorry, military members that that um, struggle with PTSD, getting them out onto the golf course and using golf as a rehabilitation tool, and then this program also gets them uh, a uh, tries to place them into the game of golf and uh, and get them hired by facilities so that they. They can have a career in golf, and uh, th- those are those are some of the the more recent things that we we've, we've been involved in. You mentioned that Brent Wadsworth was involved in starting the foundation. 
Unfortunately, he's no longer with us. And unfortunately, uh, John Cotter passed away earlier this year as well. What did those two people mean to Wadsworth? And what did those two people mean to the, the construction side of the, the golf business? And what are your memories of them? Well, um, I was fortunate enough to spend a lot of time around them um, in my first go-around with the Wadsworth Company, so I really got to know them deeply, uh, and their their losses, I think, immeasurable. Um, luckily, what they did do was leave, leave a, a legacy, and they left a legacy in so many people in our industry, Guy. Um, you know, in your interviews, like, you know, most of the guys that you talk to, in some way, shape, or form, probably came through the Wadsworth Company or dealt with the Wadsworth Company at some point in time. Brent was a, a bigger picture, bigger picture guy. Brent wasn't the day-to-day guy, right? He wasn't the guy that was going to be calling anybody, you know, on a job site and 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 telling them exactly how to handle their position on the golf course. John Cotter was that guy. John Cotter was the eyes and ears of every project that that went on with uh, the Wadsworth Company because he was the eyes and ears, right, because of the way that he managed those projects and and talked to the people that that were involved in those. He had, you know, he he was instrumental in really developing how to build golf courses. They were the first golf course company in 1958 to start, and John was the first employee. They were the first one to start to ever focus on building golf courses alone and that was it there was no other companies that, that ever did that and Innisbrook was one of the first projects and and Brent was Brent was a partner at Innisbrook at the time so so he built that golf course and then he came up into Ohio and started building a few golf courses then came into Illinois and before you know it he had 100 golf courses built and John Cotter was 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 instrumental in every single one of those I still say that I, I I would challenge anybody to to um, to find anyone else that has had more impact on more people in this industry than John Cotter, and 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 not many people knew it because John was always behind the scenes, but because of his guidance and direction to the people that were on the ground, he impacted everybody there in a positive way. What type of motivator is it working for a company that has that type of history? And what type of motivator is it knowing that those are the type of people that came before yourself at the company? Well, it's tough shoes to fill, especially with the, you know, the, my involvement with the foundation. Um, I'm working with Eric Wadsworth, who's the president of our foundation, um, and Leslie Wadsworth is our secretary. So those were two of his, his kids. We always just say, you know, what would, what would Brent have done? What would Brent have, have done? And Brent would always always make the right decision, it seemed. He was, a, he was a, just such a wise man, and he, and he always, had, always put others before himself. Trying to do that with the foundation is, is it's easy because, I mean, in some senses it is because you just you do what he would do, and that's put others first. Uh, the construction side of things, you know, there's been a transition of, of those guys into our, uh, into our, it went from them to the, the Shap, Tom Chaplin and, and Paul Eldridge and who were just unbelievable human beings. And, and now it's with Pat Karnick, uh, who was our president and the president of the Gulf Coast Builders and, 
and Greg Cornetta, who was one of our vice presidents, Mark Slagaki, all these guys have been in the golf course industry, have been building golf courses for 20-plus years, maybe some of them 30-plus years. So just being around them and soaking in the knowledge of golf course construction is it's awesome. You know, it's, it's just awesome. And it's on a day-to-day basis, it's pretty neat to come and, and work with these guys. You're an architect who works for a construction company. We've talked a lot on this podcast about the relationship the architect has to have with the superintendent. How important is the relationship between the architect and the builder to a project's success? And what are some keys to to having a strong relationship between those two sides? It's paramount, really. Um, There's no question that, you know, the architect, every architect has a style or a theme or uh, what they want to try to accomplish with the shaping and uh, the visuals on, on every project they're with. And um, the sooner that that construction company or that construction foreman and the shaper can, can pick up on that, the easier that project becomes, right? I mean, when we can only draw so much on paper as architects. You're drawing at a scale of, of one inch equals 50 feet, right? And those lines can be... They're really tough to get exactly what you want. And, and when you go out into the field and you, you see something that's shaped or something that's sculpted, you know, you may want to tweak it a little bit or move it because it wasn't exactly the way you would envision um, or there's a landform that wasn't there. And when the architect and the, the shaper communicate really well up front, those kind of things get realized faster. Because, you know, it's the things that the architect says to the shaper or the superintendent um, that can that can nip things in the bud and it can make things become a reality faster. So communication and, and just being being on the same page when it comes to the, the theme or the style, that's what makes a project go by go by easier, as well as weather, <laughs> which none of us can control, but that's always a, a killer. Yeah, when you're in the, the business long enough, you probably see some wild things. At what point do you know a, a project's going to go smooth? Is there that moment on every project where you realize that we're going to get to the finish line without any major hassles? When there's a history of maybe a project manager and an architect, and they kind of know each other really, really well, Um you get to, you get to, to um, I don't know, what I, I don't know how to say this, but I guess you get to kind of forecast the thought process. And when you get to the point of the construction company forecasting the thought process of the architect, that's when you know it's going to be a successful project. What is it like when you get to the finish line? Uh, how fulfilling, rewarding is it? Relieving? I mean, explain the emotions when all these projects get to the ending point yeah you know an architect as well as a a golf course contractor i mean we're both we both have have pride and vision right and we both take a you know the architect starts a little earlier than the contractor does but you you draw a vision of what that that project's going to be and um I, i when you can create something that you know is going to be there for a long period of time for many, many people to enjoy. It, it's tough to, tough to beat that. It's really tough to beat that. And when you, when you have an owner 
that is committed just like the architect and the contractor are, then it's a win. You know, it's a win for everybody, and the chances of that thing being financially successful tend to be a lot better when when everybody's committed to it. Last month at the Golf Course Builders Association of America meeting, Matt Lohman was joking with me that I should come to Chicago and spend a month recording Tartan Talks episodes because there's that many people involved at the construction side of the industry and architecture <laughs> side in Chicago. In all seriousness, uh, what has it been like being based there and how much uh, golf uh, construction and architectural bra- brain power is there in, in your region? <laughs> yeah, when, when I was with Rick... Um... You know, we we had to we had to battle the, the you know Bob Loman, Matt Loman's father, um, Todd Quitno was with him, and Greg Martin, our past ASGCA president, and Mike Benkuski's here. There's there's others too that would that would tend to come in, and Steve Smyers did projects here, and um, you know uh, Arthur Hills was had a had a huge presence here in Chicago. Uh, the Nugent family was here, so I mean it. It runs really deep here, really deep. And I think that's what's so much fun about playing golf around here is all of those different personalities um, are expressed in the golf courses here. And then you mix in the, the Cold Allisons and, uh, you know, and then the, um, all the classic golf courses that are here as well, Bendelows and, and everybody else. It's, it's cool. There's just, there's just a, a great deal of variety and I don't think, other than maybe New York, there's many other cities that can say that they have this much variety of golf. It's awesome. You, you need to come here and just so we can play golf and you don't have to do your tartan talks. We can just, you know, hit the ball around. <laughs> wow, you're giving me uh, <laughs> good yet bad ideas. Uh, <laughs> and the, the thing is, Chicago is a fairly flat city, too, and you have all this golf diversity. It is. It is. Um, there's not much elevation change, and I think that's what that's what lets you that's what lets you maximize, right? The the overhilly, the, the the very terrained golf courses. That's what provides limitations. You know, when you have flatter sites, then you can you can use your creativity and your imagination to create fun, um, and and you'll see that here. You'll you'll see it all over the place here. It's pretty neat. So so does a builder love a flat site and architect hate it do i have that right or (laughs) (laughs) well builder loves a dry site (laughs) whatever can be dry um but an architect you know rick rick jacobson and i went over then we we um yeah we weren't blessed with the abandoned dune sites or the you know the whistling straight sites we had a couple but most of the time they were the flatter sites i'll never forget we had bear trap dunes out in delaware and it was a chicken farm and it had you know a foot and a half of elevation change over 300 acres so you could imagine what that looked like right so i'm wondering what it smelled like when you got there (laughs) it wasn't pretty i'll tell you (laughs) Uh, so you but you can imagine okay now we have a blank slate what can we do with this blank slate you know and and that's where that's where I've been an idol of, of, a, of Pete Dye, and, and Pete's always been somebody that created, you know, he, he, he used earth moving and he used bulldozers to his advantage, and he created such visually strong golf courses, 
And um, I just love that. I mean, that's my, I, you know, Bob Cup was more of a visual guy than he was a strategist. Uh, he was an artist. And I, I, I tend to kind of fall into that category, too, but with the integration of strategy along with it. But, uh, you know, these flat sites, you can you can do some fun things as long as you can put a bulldozer in the ground. This so. business by no means is certainly easy, but how awesome has it been spending your career designing and playing a part in the building of, of golf courses? Well, I, well, I don't think I'd choose it any other way, Guy, to be honest with you. Um, you know, I've, I've, I've been it's, – it's been – a part of my everyday life, right? Just as it is yours and everybody else who's in this industry. And and one of the great things about it was because it was part of my everyday life, it was part of my family's everyday life. And, you know, my I had a son and a daughter, and my son, you know, was more of a, uh, he's a baseball and football kind of guy. And my daughter started to take up the game. Uh, at a bit of young age, and we competed at the drive chip and punt championship, and she made it out of sectionals and out of regionals, and you know, and I kept showing her, you know, this is Augusta, this is Augusta National, where the championship of this is played. Well, unfortunately, she didn't get there, but it piqued her interest, right? Well, now she's she's playing college golf, and I get to go watch her, and and you know, golf is it's just integrated into us, and it's the greatest sport on earth and i wouldn't trade it for the world where does your daughter play golf and what type of courses does she she get to play on and does dad give her advice about reading the terrain (laughs) i used to when she was in high school the golf coaches would ask me to come over and help teach the girls about strategy and, and about reading the green right what why does the ball break in a certain direction or why it it does the way it does but um jenny plays it uh, Loyola of Chicago, who uh, final four team a few years ago in basketball, which is pretty neat, and uh, they they get to play some of the great golf courses that we've already talked about on the North Shore of Chicago, and uh, it's it's pretty neat. Uh, she's she's loving it, and I'm I'm envious of all the good golf courses she gets to play. Actually, has Sister Jean come to any of her golf matches? Gene has not come to a golf match, but one of our first uh, one of our first visits to Loyola, and then this may have been the selling point or a sign that we saw Sister Jean sitting there, and we approached her and talked to her and said a prayer with her, and it was it was really neat. This is you know right during the the, the heyday of their run. It was it was pretty awesome. She's a great woman, just. Oh. So humble and approachable. Pretty pretty cool. So, so last thing here. Did you ever imagine growing up in Steubenville that you would get to go to the places you have and meet the people you have through your career and through this game of golf? No. I mean, not at all. You know, in Steubenville, Ohio, nobody talked about, hey, I, you know, last week I went to China or I got to go to Malaysia or I was in Colombia or, you know, Japan, nobody said that. Nobody had the opportunity to do that. They were all grinding in the steel mills, you know. So I'm blessed. Uh, it was, it was a really, really great to, to, to take the journey that I've taken. Still have several more years left, and hopefully that journey doesn't stop. But uh, golf has taken me.
me to, to wonderful things, and I've got to see many wonderful things across the world. Well, Doug, this was a blast. It was awesome to get you on the podcast. Congrats on everything that you've accomplished, and I'm sure we'll bump into you again soon, and we'll definitely trade some football stories in between our, <laughs> our golf tales. All right. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate it.